Well, we are in a study in the book of Joel and encourage you to turn with me in your Old Testaments to this little book of Joel. It is one of the books of the prophets, those ones who, under the inspiration of God, gave a word from God to the people, either a word that they needed to hear today or a word about what's coming up in the future. If you don't quite know where Joel is, I encourage you just to look it up in the front of your Bible and get a page number and then go ahead and turn to Joel. Daniel and then the book of Hosea and then the book of Joel. We have noted in our series thus far that Joel talks about believers' sin and then coupled with that God's discipline. It talks about repentance and it talks about God's faithfulness. And as we saw in the very beginning of the book, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, Joel talks about God-sized issues. Those are things that people face that it becomes eventually apparent that, that we cannot handle them. We do not have enough strength. We don't have enough intellect. We are not creative enough to find a pathway to in and of ourselves make it through. God-sized issues call God's people to him. And one of the things that Joel called the people of Israel to here in chapter 1 of the book of Joel is to come to God when they face God-sized issues in fasting and prayer. Now, the God-sized issue in chapter 1 was wave after wave of devastating locusts that annihilated the land, leaving nothing behind. But then toward the end of that section, in verse 15, and this chapter 1 concluded, the prophet Joel said, you know, this has been terrible, but it's going to get worse. In fact, he told them that this, these devastating waves of locusts were just a sign of what's still to come. That that there is a day of the Lord coming. And in the Old Testament, often the day of the Lord would be a reference to a time when God breaks through and brings discipline or judgment upon a people. And the prophet here in chapter 1 verse 15 said, Whoa! You think this has been bad? This is just the warm-up band to what's coming. Things are going to get worse. There is a day of the Lord coming. And in that section, verses 15 through 20, we saw that this day of the Lord was from the hand of God. Shaddai, the Almighty. And we noted that in passages where it talks about that name of God, Shaddai, or the Almighty, they are comes in passages where it talks about the fact that God is big enough to be faithful to his promises, and God is big enough to bring discipline on his people when they need it. And here, in Joel, this big God has a message for his people, and that message is, whoa, there is a day coming. It's soon. It's coming up, a day 
of judgment. And we ask the question, what if God is in the hard stuff? What if when we face those really difficult times, those times that that cause us down to the core of our being to turn to God, what if God is in that stuff? That he's not just off somewhere and we're just the victims of living in a sinful world, but actually he has a purpose in it. And one of the things that we will see today as we come to chapter 2 is that Joel is picking up again on chapter 1, verse 15, talking about this upcoming day of the Lord and that God does have a purpose in it. And the people need to know that it's coming. That they need to be ready. That there is need for an alarm here. I'm going to read the section out loud. You can follow along in your copy of the text. I'll start reading in Joel chapter 2 verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. As the Dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There's never been anything like it, nor will there be after it, to the years of many generations. A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, like war horses, so they run. With a noise as of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble like a mighty people arranged for battle. Before them the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers and they each march in line, nor do they deviate from their paths. They do not crowd each other. They they march everyone in his path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. Before them, the earth quakes. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? You see, Joel's talking about what's coming up. Now, that's not a topic that Christians focus on much today. As I go to pastor's meetings, and usually they're a group of young guys uh, in the area and and in the valley here in the uh, corridor, people aren't really talking much about God's plan for the future. Topics today that evangelicals focus on are things like justice, what well, how is God's justice seen in our culture today? It's a very hot topic. Or the process of salvation. How does salvation actually work? 
Or how can we find Christ in the Old Testament? But not much about God's plan of bringing restoration of his good creation. Not much about God's plan for the end. We don't hear much discussion about the tribulation or the kingdom, the millennial kingdom. And yet a major theme of scripture all the way through the Old Testament and the New Testament is focusing on God's plan for what's coming up, what's still to come, his plan for history and how it will come to a culmination and how he will bring restoration to his good creation. The Bible talks a lot about getting ready for what's not here yet. In 1995, when my wife Barbara and I moved to Cedar Rapids, we moved to uh, an area of the, on the northeast part of the city called Bowman Woods. Those in the room here would know that, know that area. My wife actually bought the house without me even seeing it. I thought that was pretty good of me to let her buy a house without me, but she had her dad with her. Well, we lived in that house for about seven years, and during our tenure there, I would always go to, I'm kind of a creature of habit, I'd go to work the same way. And for a long period of time, I would come across this man every morning out walking with a big backpack. Now, for a person who is more random in life and does things differently every day, they'd probably just come across this guy and say, well, that's strange and just not think about him. But I saw him every day. Out walking with this huge backpack. Now, I think I know why he did that. Because I had a friend that did that. I think he was preparing for something coming up. He was either planning a trip to hike to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Or maybe he was getting ready for an elk hunt up in the mountains of Idaho or Colorado or Montana, but he was living with purpose because he knew something was coming. Either that or he was just a nut, but I don't think so. I think, I think he had a plan. I think he had a plan. He was preparing. And one of the things that we're going to see here in Joel chapter 2 is that God's people need to be very much aware of God's plan. That it's important for us to think about what's going to happen in the future because it has bearing on how we live today. Here, Joel is going to sound an alarm. The Lord gives him directions. This needs to be on the hearts and minds of people. That there is this judgment coming. Now, this morning as we look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, we're going to look at it a little bit in a different way than we often do. Because while this is a prophecy, it also kind of has the feel of Hebrew poetry to it. 
And one of the things that the prophet does here in this very distinct section of the le- of the of the book, chapter two, verses one through eleven, is he begins the section the same way he ends it. So verses one and two, and verses ten and eleven are parallel. Think of it like an Oreo cookie. I'm a big I always prefer my wife's home baked cookies, but if I have to venture out and go botten, it's hard to beat an Oreo, right? Especially a double stuff Oreo. Well, here in Joel chapter two, it's kind of like an Oreo cookie. Verses one and two is the outer part, the hard part of the cookie, versus 10 and 11 are the other half of the cookie. And then verses 3 through 9 is the double stuff. And what we're going to do today, and some of you probably do this, I never understand it, but what we're going to do is open the cookie and eat out the double stuff first. And then we're going to actually look at the outer part of the cookie. So that's what we're doing today. We're going to look at the double stuff, verses 3 through 9. Then we're going to look at the outer part of the cookie. And just as you look at an Oreo, there's no way of knowing, is this the top of the Oreo or the bottom of the Oreo, right? It doesn't say top and bottom. They're they're identical. So also verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 and 11 are so similar, they form this Oreo cookie prophecy. So we're going to look at the filling first, verses 3 through nine. And in verses three through nine, we're going to see this truth about the Lord's upcoming day. It's going to be from him and it's going to involve his army. And we're going to see that the Lord's army moves quickly without resistance and it causes fear. The Lord's army moves quickly without resistance and it causes fear in the hearts of those that stand in opposition. Here, starting in verse 3, we begin seeing this description of the army of the Lord. Now, if you've studied this passage or just read through this book of Joel, there will be an immediate question. And you'll start to say, well, what, what is this army? Uh, I'm a little confused. Is this more locusts? Is this a literal army? What are we looking at here? And Bible teachers have different opinions about the nature of this army. And if you have a study Bible that has notes, or maybe you've opened up a, a book that explains this passage, you will see there's differences of opinion as far as what this army actually is. We're going to talk briefly here about three different possibilities for verses 3 through 9. Some Bible teachers believe that verses 3 through 9 is still talking about locusts, the same subject as in chapter 1, verses 1 down through verse 14. They're saying that this is just going to be another locust wave coming in. And they argue that based on things like the word like. If you look down with me in verse 5, 
It says this army is going to come with noises of chariots. They leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle. So they would argue there's no way this could be people because it says they are going to be like people. So that would be one of their arguments. They also would turn to verse 2 and say, well, look at verse 2. It says that the... uh, that the sky is going to be black. It's a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And they would say, well, it has to be a swarm of locusts that would cause this darkness. So they would conclude chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, is talking about more locusts. For example, if you read out of the New English translation, the net... In their notes, that's their conclusion. This is talking about locusts. I hold to a second position. I think this is talking about a literal army. And there are many Bible teachers that would agree that this is a literal army that's being talked about here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, that Israel will face unless they repent and turn back to the Lord. Those who argue that this is a literal army would turn to, for example, chapter 2, verse 20, where it says that I will remove the northern army far from you. So it's to identify that this army has moved down from the north. Also, those who think this is a literal army have an explanation for that little word like that occurs time after time after time. In the Hebrew language, it's just one consonant and some vowels. And that little word translated like also can carry the idea of it is like this in every respect. We don't use the term that way in the English language, but what it would be saying, for example, in verse 5, is that this army is an army of mighty people in every respect. And so that is a common use of the term. It's actually saying that, yes, they are a literal army of people. The third position would say that this description of the army is parallel to an army in the end times. And they would turn to passages like Revelation chapter 9, verses 2 through 11, where the author of Revelation, the human author John, is talking about an end times army that will resemble locusts. So here we find an army. I think it's a human army. And it is coming. Now, regardless of which position one takes, whether this is still locusts, whether this is a human army that Joel is saying you're going to face it if you don't repent, or whether this is already referring to the army at the end of God's program, the message is clear that the Lord's armies move quickly, The Lord's armies cannot be resisted, and they do cause fear. When I was a kid, my dad, in our car, always kept a collapsible cup. 
I can never remember him ever using it. But I was intrigued by it. It was a little metal container about just small. It would look almost like a can of chewing tobacco. Now, my parents would never have chewing tobacco in the car. But that's kind of what it looked at, like, that size. And it had a screw-on cap. And you could unscrew the cap, and it opened up like a telescope. It was the coolest thing. You just open it up and layer, and then layer, and layer, come out, came out, and it's like a cup. Well, that's a little bit, I think, what we see here in Joel. The, when the cup is all collapsed, we see this, this judgment of God coming in the form of these locusts. And then as we come to chapter 2... The cup expands and it still kind of sounds like locusts, but there's more being talked about here than that. I think it's a literal army. And then as we get to chapter 3, that cup's going to open up more. And I think chapter 3 is talking about the Lord's Day that's going to happen at the end of God's history. And we'll talk about that a little bit more this morning. And so we have this collapsible cup. And the prophet Joel... Speaking for the Lord is saying, we've got to be ready because God's program is going to unfold and there's going to be judgment and it is sure. Now look at the description of this army in verses 3 through 9. In verse 3, it definitely is an army that destroys. Notice it says, it's a, it's, this army is going to be like a fire. It consumes everything before them and everything behind them. Before the army gets there, the land looks like the Garden of Eden, referring clear back to Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. But after the army comes through, desolate. It's very interesting that Joel refers here to the Garden of Eden. It, we're not going to take time this morning, but if you're taking notes, look up Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 35. In that section of the prophet of Ezekiel, it's right before we get to that vision of all these dry bones that are reconstituted and come back to life. It's this section of Ezekiel where the prophet is saying, even though God's people are spread throughout the world, God's going to bring them back together. They are going to be reunited and they are going to enter the kingdom and they will be God's people and God will be their God. And In that passage, in chapter 36, verse 35, the prophet Ezekiel says, it's going to be like the Garden of Eden. So here, Joel alludes to the same thing, that Israel's land before this devastating army comes was like the Garden of Eden, but unless they turn in repentance, it's going to be wiped out. But take heart. The prophet Ezekiel says, one day, it will all be restored again. And here, Joel is stressing the destruction. In verses 4 and 5, he says, God's army is invincible. I don't know about you all in your home, in your home, but the Bentons, we are butter people. You know, margarine, it's not that great for you, and it tastes terrible. So, if we're going to die anyway, let's do it in style. Let's use real butter. Maybe in moderation, 
but we use butter. Now, and we're old school. We keep it out on the counter. And in the summertime, I'm also frugal, so we don't keep our house so cold that you can hang meat. And, and, and so our butter is soft. Here, the prophet is looking at this army and they're so invincible. It's like taking a knife in your butter dish in the summer. It's just going to slice right through. There's no resistance at all. He says in verses 4 and 5, this army is like these mighty war horses and chariots. They're just going to plow right on through and we're not going to be able to do anything about it. In fact, verse 6 says, we are going to be scared. This is to be feared. Look at it. Before them, the people are in anguish. Their faces turn pale. And then in verses 7, 8, and 9, he says there's no resistance. They won't even break rank when they come through us. You see, it's God's army. It's the Lord's army. And when they come in judgment, judgment will come. Now, that's not popular message today. In fact, one of the common objections to God today is that people argue and say, well, if God was really a God that I, who I would want to serve, he wouldn't bring judgment. How can a good God judge people? How could a good God do that? How could a good God even cause fear? No, it's nothing for me. And it's important for us as followers of Jesus Christ to be reminded that we do not have to be ashamed of a God who brings judgment. Think about this. If God did not judge sin, he would not be holy and pure. In other words, how could a pure God just overlook sin in the lives of those he has created. If he just said, oh, it's not a big deal, even though I commanded that they do it and they disobeyed me, I'll just overlook it. It would actually detract from his holiness and purity. Well, then people would say, well, why did God make humanity with the ability to choose? Why didn't he just make us morally good? And our response can be because God in his infinite wisdom and his right to as much glory as possible, we would not be able to see the depths of who he is in all of his love and grace and mercy if people did not have free choice. You see, the greatest demonstration of the mercy and grace of God was him sending his one and only son who knew no sin to come to earth and die for us. If God made us without moral choice, with no ability to sin, it would detract from us being able to see the depths of his love as demonstrated in his willingness to die for a sinful people. We don't have to be ashamed, keep our head down about a God who brings judgment. 
Pastor Brian read earlier from 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. And in 1 John 2, 2, it refers to God as he himself is the propitiation for our sins. That is a huge word. We don't use it in everyday language today. But propitiation involves satisfying the righteous wrath of God. And if God did not have righteous wrath, he would not be righteous. He would not be holy. But he is a God of love. In fact, he is a God of such deep love that he saw our plight and used and sent his one and only son to take all of his wrath upon himself. And if he did not create people with moral choice, we would never understand the depths of his love and mercy and grace. I attended a very rough high school, a large high school for the day, uh, roughly around 1,800 students in 10th, 11th, and 12th grade in Council Bluffs. Some of my friends refer to Council Bluffs as the armpit of Iowa. I had one guy tell me that Council Bluffs is the zit of Iowa. It kind of hurts when it's your hometown. and uh, But it's a rough place. And it was a rough high school. What, things that happened in my high school, you see on television, but you don't think they ever happened, like the swirly. It happened all the time in my high school, where guys would take another kid's head and force it into the toilet and flush it. Or I would walk into the restroom and guys would flush M80s down the toilets and blow them up. So you'd come in and there'd just be porcelain blown everywhere. It sounded like there were explosions in our school. That's my high school. Now, picture that and then picture me with my Texas Instrument TI-30 on my belt. And I am a member of the science club. Now, when you go to that high school and you're in the science club... It's not a pretty sight. And you learn just to kind of keep your head down and you move quickly between classes and try not to be noticed. Because if you just don't make eye contact and try to survive the day. My wife loved high school. Oh, she just flipped from one thing to the next. I hated high school. I wanted to go from ninth grade to college and skip 10th, 11th, and 12th. I've never been to a class reunion. If I would go, they probably meet at the penitentiary because that's where most of my classmates are. So... I just, I just, I could, I just wanted to get out of there so bad. And here I am, science geek. With my, now the TI-30, I just didn't know better. I should, I should have wised up and not worn my TI-30. But you just, you kind of just were a little bit ashamed to say, well, I'm in the science club. I love the science club. We go to Chicago. We go to the Museum of Science Industry. We went to a weather station. I love science club, but I'm not going to talk about it because I'm kind of ashamed. I don't want to get beat up. Well, here, when we look at God's judgment today, it's tempting for us as Christians to kind of keep our head down and say, you know, I do believe that God judges and then, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to get it. And we don't have to be that way. Because God's judgment is the result of his holiness, his righteousness, his absolute purity. Who wants to have a God that's not pure? 
And because of God's holiness and righteousness and purity, he is a right judge. And he will bring judgment. But it also, against that backdrop, we see the depth of his love and his grace and mercy. Just like we're going to see it as Joel continues to unfold. So in the middle part of the cookie, we find Joel describing this awesome army that's going to come in judgment. But in the outer part of the cookie, verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 and 11, God has a message for his people through the prophet Joel. And here's the message. Be aware of it coming. Think about it. Joel, sound an alarm. And we see in verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 and 11 that people need to be aware of the nearness of the day of the Lord. Verse 1. Verse 1 begins, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. That's actually Hebrew poetry. And Hebrew poetry, they don't work off of rhyme. They work off of parallel thought. And this opening of this verse is a direct parallel. Meaning, blow a trumpet is saying the same thing as sound an alarm. Blow a trumpet in Zion is saying the same thing as sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Remember the Hebrew word Zion sometimes refers to the city of Jerusalem as a whole. Sometimes it refers to the mount upon which the temple was built. Sometimes it refers to the temple itself. When we sing that old hymn, I'm marching to Zion, we were talking about the heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem. So here, when God tells Joel to blow a trumpet in Zion, My holy mountain, he's talking about from his dwelling place. In the Israelites' eyes, God dwelled in the temple amongst his people. And so here, God's saying, this is my call. I am the one sending this judgment. Joel, send out a warning. And he tells him, blow a trumpet. Now, that's not a trumpet like we would picture in marching band. This would have been like a horn of an animal. This shofar would have been a, a trumpet that was, bl- was blown, for example, sometimes in the Old Testament, when God showed up. Theologians call it a theophany. It's when God actually breaks through and shows up. Sometimes we see that in a reference to the angel of the Lord, and theologians believe that's a reference to Jesus Christ coming to earth before he took on humanity. And there would be a blowing of the horn. Sometimes this blowing of the horn we see in the Old Testament in connection with the day of the Lord. God's point here is my people need to know that judgment is coming. Warn them. Blow a trumpet. Sound an alarm. The day of the Lord's coming. Now whether what I think is correct that the day of the Lord here is a reference to an upcoming time when God's going to bring judgment, unless Israel repents, or the ultimate day of the Lord that's referred to in passages like Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10, that period of time that will begin with the tribulation and then move into the millennial kingdom where God will bring his history to its culmination. Either way, and maybe we have a little bit of that telescoping cup here in in the book of Joel. 
The point is clear. God's people need to be aware that God's program is unfolding. And when we are aware of it, it should affect how we are living every day. You see, verse 11 makes it clear that this is from the Lord. The Lord utters his voice before his army. It's his. This is coming from him. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And Joel is to sound the alarm. There is a judgment coming. A few weeks ago, I mentioned to Barbara that we need to get a new alarm clock in our room at home. This came to fruition in the fact that recently I, see, I can't, if I take my glasses off, I can't even totally make out who's who in the back. I have to have my glasses, but I don't wear my glasses to sleep. So I can't read the digits on this clock very well. And a couple of weeks ago, I saw the clock and I was startled and I thought, oh, we've got to get up. We we didn't set the alarm and, and we're late and and we're scurrying around and Barb's got the bed made and then she looks at me with not great pleasure because I had read the clock wrong and it was actually an hour sooner than we ever get up. So I said, dear, we need a new alarm clock. Now, the other thing, alarm clocks are wimpy today. You know, I think they believe that People should be gently roused out of their slumber with quiet music in the background. I want old school. I want the alarm clock that has the two bells on top with the clangor that when it goes off, it literally lifts you out of bed because it is so strong and so loud and there's no way we're going to sleep through that. There's no snooze button. When that baby goes off, we're up. And that's The kind of alarm that God says, Joel, my people need to know this is coming. Blow the horn. Sound the alarm. It's coming. And you know what? If we are actually aware and thinking about God's plan unfolding... It will change how we live our everyday life. The New Testament tells us that. We go to a passage in the New Testament like Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, which our our children here at Faith Bible Church in our Awana ministries, this is like a key verse in Awana. Titus chapter 2, starting the read in verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And Paul's point in Titus is, If we are really thinking about the fact that God's program could unfold today, that Jesus Christ could come back today, and then this period of judgment would happen before the kingdom happens, it causes us, if we're really cognizant of it, 
to be living for him in holiness in our everyday choices. It's a, a deterrence to sinning if we think, hey, he, the Lord could come back right now. We see in passages like 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 9 through 13 that being aware of the coming of the Lord and the coming of the day of the Lord helps prioritize our lives. We even see that when we are thinking about the fact that God's program can unfold anytime, as, as the prophet Joel said, the day of the Lord is near, it should push us, motivate us as Christians today to be talking about Jesus with people. That's the point of the author of the book of Hebrews in chapter 9, starting to read in verse 26, because the author of Hebrews says this. He's talking about how Jesus' gift of himself as an offering is superior to a high, to a priest having to make sacrifices year after year. And he says in verse 26, Otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he's been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice himself of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, And after this comes judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. There's not a second chance. If a person dies, then comes judgment. There's no second chances. And for us to be aware of the fact that God does judge It's because of who he is. And those who die without believing in the person of Jesus Christ are going to face that judgment should drive us to want to talk about Jesus with those in our webs of relationship, with those with whom we work, with our family members, with our neighbors, with those that we serve on a mission trip, those that come to vacation Bible school. You see... God is telling Joel to sound the alarm. Day of the Lord is coming. And it's important for us to keep that in our thinking. I think it's important for us to read not only deep in our Bible, but wide. Sometimes it's good for us not just to read two verses in a devotional, but maybe sometimes just say, you know, I'm going to read through 1 Peter today. It actually doesn't take that long unless you decide to read through Ezekiel in one sitting. But to read wide and this theme of God's future program comes all the way through scripture. You'll hit it. We are to be very much aware that the day of the Lord is coming. Father, we thank you for these verses. Help us to be people with an eternal perspective. Help us to be people that are mindful that you are a God who will bring judgment, but also a God of love who poured out your judgment for us upon your Son, and through faith in him, we can be right with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.